COVID restrictions are loosening in Taiwan. Experts let us know when they think life will return to normal. The Wall Street Journal says U.S. troops are in Taiwan. Natalie talks to military strategist Alexander Huang about what that means. And Stash speaks with labor activist Roy Nern about Taiwan's minimum wage hike. Finally, I'm going to tell you about how the world celebrated Taiwan National Day. This is Taiwan Insider. Taiwan saw great National Day celebrations this week, and people are enjoying life more because restrictions are loosening. We're also seeing very low COVID case numbers daily. So does this mean that life is going to return back to normal soon in Taiwan? Let's see what the experts have to say. Taiwan's recent Double Ten National Holiday provided a chance to go outside for many people tired of the pandemic lifestyle. Central Epidemic Command Center Director Chen Shizhong says the current alert level has not yet been lowered, and there are five factors that will determine when this can happen. The number of cases of unknown origin, availability of medical resources, vaccination rates, the international pandemic situation, and public compliance with epidemic prevention measures. But can life go back to normal when these standards are met? Experts have differing opinions. The director of National Taiwan University Children's Hospital, Huang Limin, says two of the indicators are the most important. The number of daily cases and the vaccination rate, which must reach around 80 percent. Dr. Zhou Baichen from Taipei Medical University says many of the indicators are too subjective, and Taiwan's biggest problem right now is the lack of large-scale screening. The coming days will show if Taiwan will get as lucky after the Double Ten long weekend as it did following the Dragon Boat Festival and keep case numbers low. Experts say we cannot get careless and loosening mask mandates will not be that easy. Central Epidemic Command Center expert Li Bingying says only two or three weeks of no local cases would put his mind at ease, and that mass activities over the National Day weekend could increase the risk of infection. Director Huang says that even before the vaccination rate reaches 80 percent, we could consider where and if people who have already gotten both vaccine doses can take off their masks. Experts agree that reaching vaccination goals and wearing masks is the best way to ensure a speedy return to normal life. One of the biggest news of late comes from the Wall Street Journal that says there have been about two dozen U.S. troops stationed in Taiwan for at least a year. Now, how significant is that? Well, I asked a top military strategist in Taiwan, Professor Alexander Huang of the Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies, and this is what he had to say. So far, the report uh, had no uh, official response from both Taiwan and the United States government. Uh, to my personal knowledge that we, through a foreign military sales program, that we have uh, robust military exchanges, including high-level visit and uh, tactical-level assistance. Those uh, visiting delegation or people are small, very small in terms of size. Um, they are here uh, only serve as an advisor or instructor. They try to help Taiwan to improve technical capabilities uh, to deal with different scenarios and challenges. So it cannot 
and should not be framed as United States stationed troops in Taiwan. So what about the report of there being Marines and Special Ops Forces training troops in Taiwan? Do you think that's true? Yeah, it is true. I, I, I think um, that um, the report had certain degrees uh, of validation. Um, but uh, it has never been, uh, you know, approved uh, that it can be uh, shared uh, with uh, outside audience or media because their work here is to teach person to person of combat skills. Mm -hmm. It's not the American station troops and ready to fight with Taiwan military shoulder by shoulder against someone. Would you see it as an increased commitment by the U.S. to help Taiwan defend itself or to work with Taiwan um, in the event of a Chinese attack? I would say that it shows that the United States commitment to help Taiwan defends itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not mean that we are working or paving a way for a uh, campaign size uh, or theater-wide, you know, collaboration. We are not there yet. Uh, and we, I do not know whether we are going toward that direction. And um, I would not use this case to elaborate or to imagine that in the future there will be, you know, brigade, you know, a division, uh, or battalion type of joint operation. That is not the case. Um, I'm also curious what you think of the recent, you know, sending of many planes from China near Taiwan. We've seen over 600 this year already, 150 the first four days, you know, of October. And then we saw also President Biden speak with, you know, President Xi and saying they have a Taiwan agreement. Tell me what you think of this, what this Taiwan agreement could be. If we cut out all the so-called impossibles, and then the best that we can think of, that something that Xi Jinping promised, uh, you know, uh, President Biden, as Biden during uh, his uh, interview saying that uh, he would hold China accountable for a Taiwan agreement, I would say the only possible agreement, quote unquote, that I can think of that is logical for me is that is that uh, Xi Jinping said that Beijing will use peaceful means to resolve the problems across the Taiwan Strait. So that's it. Uh, so when uh, the reporters uh, run to the President Biden and say, oh, what's your comment on the, you know, bombers and uh, reconnaissance planes, fighter jets flying uh, through the uh, Taiwan's uh, ADIZ? And the president naturally would say, you know, I will hold him accountable because President Biden may remember that uh, China had promised uh, and agreed to use peaceful means to resolve political differences. And why are you sending so many military plans? That's how I would imagine what exactly the story was. 
Professor Alexander Huang is a top military expert in Taiwan. The whole interview will be up on YouTube and Facebook. Last week, Taiwan's labor officials announced that they were going to raise the minimum wage by about 5%. Now, that's great news for food and beverage workers, but for everyone else, it's not that big of an impact. Taiwan's minimum wage is going to rise. That's going to help employees in the food and beverage industry, which saw major setbacks due to the ban on indoor dining that lasted over two months due to the COVID outbreak in May. The government has announced that it will raise the minimum wage starting January 1, 2022. The minimum monthly salary will rise to 25,250 NT dollars, while the minimum wage per hour will increase to 168 NT dollars. But is that enough? This service sector worker says her boss says the company isn't making money, so she won't get much of a raise. This employee says it won't make much of a difference due to inflation. A survey shows most people think the minimum monthly salary should be at least 26,000 NT dollars. 1111 Job Bank spokesperson Vivi Huang says this decision will mostly affect people working in dining services, since most of them receive minimum wage. Another survey found most of Taiwan's workforce hasn't received a raise in over three years. For department store salespeople, it's been over four years. Though the government is making wage progress, most people in Taiwan are going to need more than the recent minimum wage hike to make a difference. Stash Butler spoke with NGO worker and activist Roy Ngern to put this latest wage hike into context. Many cities in Taiwan have fairly high living costs, with some workers struggling to meet those costs on a minimum wage. Is Taiwan's latest rise in the minimum wage enough to help those people? If you compare Taiwan with uh, other advanced countries as a whole, packed to the cost of, cost of living, Taiwan's minimum wage should actually be closer to $40,000 on average across the whole of Taiwan. So the fact that we are still seeing a minimum wage that is only about um, half to you know, uh, 60% of what is needed in terms of the minimum wage in Taiwan means that uh, there are workers that are uh, struggling and perhaps living in uh, relative poverty. I mean, you, I mean, I, I've you know read your work and, and you point. You have lots of these very illustrative you know graphs that show uh, you know how the you know Taiwan's wages have changed over time compared to various sort of indicators of economic growth. And and you kind of repeatedly point to this kind of decoupling and kind of round about the beginning of Chen Shui-bian's presidency in in around about the year two thousand and one. Uh, what are the reasons for that? Why, why do we see this, this kind of this, uh, this separation of, I mean, profits in some cases and, and, and kind of workers' uh, compensation? I, I think a main part of the reason would be the economic crisis in 1997. Um, you can see that prior to 1997, Taiwan's minimum wage and GDP per capita was actually growing uh, faster than uh, even South Korea. And in fact, uh, this is something that many People in Taiwan have forgotten that Taiwan's minimum wage and GDP per capita used to be higher than South Korea. In fact, Taiwan's minimum wage uh, was twice as high as South Korea in the early 1990s. But this has um, changed, uh, turned around, and South Korea actually has twice the minimum wage as Taiwan right now. Um, I think it's the different uh, economic strategies that the governments in Taiwan and South Korea adopted. While South Korea felt that it had to um, turn into high-value 
uh, manufacturing and uh, economic development to grow its economy. Taiwan, however, decided that it would depress uh, costs in order to allow profits to grow. And the opening up of China uh, in the 2000s also resulted in businesses uh, leaving Taiwan for China to uh, take advantage of the lower costs. So if you look at um, indicators by the OECD, you can actually see that um, South Korea has still managed to maintain a relatively high uh, originality in terms of their innovation and uh, radicalness uh, as measured by the OECD, while in Taiwan, uh, we, we rank quite low in both of them. Uh, I think part of the reason for this, and the research has uh, suggested that paying people higher wages would tend to enhance the level of innovation, and Taiwan might have lost that level of innovation due to the uh, sustained low wages that have been depressed. I think there is that tendency in Taiwan now to talk about how it is not possible for Taiwan to move into higher value production. Um, I think this is a kind of a resignation that policymakers tend to take uh, because they do not see how it is possible to move out from this um, innovation stagnation to a higher value stagnation. But what I think we might be missing here is that we are adopting a low-cost model and if we do not jump out of this model, we will not be able to see how Taiwan would therefore have the potential to tap on the current expertise in Taiwan, tech expertise, the high level of education to then move into higher value uh, innovation. Before we leave you, here's a look at some of the other news stories that are on our radar. A building fire in the southern city of Kaohsiung Thursday has left at least seven dead and 44 in hospital as of press time. City fire department officials expect the number of casualties to rise as they comb the 13-story building for survivors. According to the village chief, the building's residential units were home to over 100 people, including many senior citizens with dementia or physical disabilities. Officials are still investigating the cause of the blaze. Taiwan celebrated its National Day on Sunday with a series of speeches and a massive parade through Taipei that involved military units, first responders, and Taiwanese heroes, including Olympic champions from this year's Games. A delegation of French senators led by Alain Richard departed Taiwan Sunday after a five-day visit. The delegation's agenda included a meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen, who awarded Richard with a national award. Harvard University is moving its summer Chinese language program from Beijing to Taipei. The Harvard Crimson reports that the planned move comes after, quote, a perceived lack of friendliness from the host institution, Beijing Language and Culture University. Specifically, the program had issues accessing the classrooms and dorms it needed, and program participants were told that they could not celebrate U.S. Independence Day. The move to Taipei will take place in 2022. And we're back in the studio for the final question of the day. Now, guys, you saw that giant cake at the end of hashtag? Yeah, Big we cake. Did. My mind was on cake ever since. <laughs> so the question that I want to pose to you at, at the end of today's show is, what would you choose to put in or on a cake to represent Taiwan, if not the flag? Sounds delicious. Mm. Stash? Okay, uh, I've gone, this is uh, topical if you've watched our show before, but pizza. What? Uh, and I mean a very particular kind okay. of pizza. Uh, which is that infamous century egg and uh, pig's blood <laughs> cake. 
I think nothing could capture Taiwan's unique sense of know, oh. culinary inventiveness. Sounds like overload for the senses to <laughs> yeah, me. It's gonna, you're you're going to use up a lot of Taiwan's goodwill on the international <laughs> stage. Yeah, if you, if you were served, if a dignitaries were served yeah. that. <laughs> There's, uh, you're asking a lot. <laughs> Natalie? Okay, I want something cute. I want our mascot, the Formosan black bear. Wouldn't that be cute? I love, that's my favorite animal. Yeah. So Aww. I can't, there's nothing I can say about that that I don't love. Yeah. Uh, for me, I say a hundred and one, 101 slash mangoes. Now, I don't mean 101 <laughs> mangoes. That's what I was going <laughs> to yeah. I mean, uh, actually, that would be pretty topical, yeah, right? You shove 101 mangoes. Uh, but what I'd say was I would put mangoes inside of the cake. Uh -huh. And that's like, because that's just my favorite fruit. That is good. I'm allergic to mangoes, but I still eat them every year. <laughs> that's commitment. And then I would <laughs> shape the cake into the shape of Taipei 101. Hey, that would be really nice. And that would be like on the cake, really right? Nice. So that would, uh, that's what I think would good be idea. a very good representation of Taiwan in cake form. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that just about does it for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Leslie Liao. I'm Stash Butler. And I am Natalie So. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. Our handle is Taiwan Insider. Anyway, guys, until next week, see you around. Bye. This is Radio Taiwan International. for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Tell us what you think of our programs. Email us at rti at rti.org.tw or write us at P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan, ROC. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Ordering Chinese to go is now easier than ever. Subscribe to the e-newsletter and receive free Chinese lessons every week delivered right to your email inbox. Find out more on our new website, english.rti.org.tw. Delivery boy not included.
This is Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. The Wall Street Journal has reported that U.S. troops, about two dozen of them, have been secretly stationed in Taiwan for at least a year. Now to talk with me about this today is a top military strategist in Taiwan, Professor Alexander Huang of Danjiang University's Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies. Professor Huang, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. And tell me what you think of the reports of U.S. troops being here in Taiwan. So far, the report had no official response from both Taiwan and the United States government. To my personal knowledge, that we, through a foreign military sales program, that we have robust military exchanges, including high-level visit and tactical-level assistance. Usually, uh, we would not say that there is no active-duty American forces in Taiwan, but uh, those uh, visiting delegation or people are small, very small in terms of size. They are here only serve as an advisor or instructor, and uh, they try to help Taiwan to improve technical capabilities uh, to deal with different scenarios and challenges. So it cannot and should not be framed as United States stationed troops in Taiwan. In addition, most of them were taken turns. So we are not talking about a fixed group of people uh, that are less than 30 or 20 that in Taiwan for a long time. Sometimes we have different people carrying different skills that they visit shortly and then return. So if we look at the larger picture, we would say that constantly we have someone here, but uh, we are not talking about, you know, a, a fixed numbers of fixed people that uh, carrying their weapons that living in Taiwan for a long time. That is not the case. So what about the report of there being Marines and Special Ops Forces training troops in Taiwan? Do you think that's true? Yeah, it is true. I, I, I think um, that um, the report had certain degrees uh, of validation, um, but uh, it has never been, uh, you know, approved uh, that it can be uh, shared with outside audience or media because their work here is to teach person to person of combat skills mm -hmm. is not the American station troops and ready to fight with Taiwan military shoulder by shoulder against someone. It's helped Taiwan improve its combat capability, not even tactical but combat capability and also share with Taiwan interlocutors about uh, possible scenarios because Taiwan has not been in a real combat situation for let's say 68 years 
So uh, we, ha- I think we have the right uh, to invite some advisors or instructors to share with us their combat experience on the ground so uh, we can better prepare our troops you know, for a possible military conflict in the future. Uh, I would frame it as a regular training program and it's small in size. It does not carry political implications. It cannot be seen as an excuse for huge unwanted reaction from the other side of the Taiwan Strait. Would you see it as an increased commitment by the U.S. to help Taiwan defend itself or to work with Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack? I would say that it shows that the United States commitment to help Taiwan defends itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not mean that we are working or paving a way for a campaign size uh, or theater-wide you know, collaboration. We're, we are not there yet. I do not know whether we are going toward that direction. For the current situation, it's just a very small special op unit or a, a specific uh, unit that trying to deal with extreme combat conditions. It's a kind of teacher, students, instructor, enlisted type of exchange. It is, it's not in any scale, even up to a company size. That's not the case. And uh, it would not be, literally, it would not be expanded to interpret it as the future joint operation. That, that's, that's very low in the level, small in the size. And um, I would not use this case to elaborate or to imagine that in the future there will be, you know, brigade, division, or battalion type of joint operation. That is not the case. You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I am Natalie So. I am speaking with a top military strategist in Taiwan, Professor Alexander Huang of Danjiang University's Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies. Now, at the beginning of this month, Taiwan saw 150 Chinese planes coming into its air defense identification zone. But shortly after that, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping about a Taiwan agreement, and those airplanes stopped coming. I talked to Professor Huang next about what he thinks that Taiwan agreement is. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. This is the sound of Taiwan. 
Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Chinese military airplanes flying into Taiwan's air defense identification zone has become a constant threat to Taiwan and to peace and stability in the region. Just this year, there have been already over 600 Chinese military planes coming into Taiwan's ADIZ. And in the first four days of October, in which October 1st marked China's National Day, China sent 150 planes to Taiwan's ADIZ. That was a historic high. Shortly after, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping and said that he reminded President Xi of their Taiwan agreement. And after that, the planes stopped coming. Now, what is the Taiwan agreement? Well, many people have been speculating about it. And today I also asked Professor Alexander Huang, who is also an American studies teacher at Danjiang University's Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies. He gives his thoughts about what that Taiwan agreement may be. Tell me what you think of what this Taiwan agreement could be. Well, Natalie, when we last spoke, do you remember what we talked about? We talked about the Japan um, saying that they might help defend Taiwan to some extent. And do you remember my answer? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> you said that Japan... You know, it, you know, you know why? Not, because, uh-huh. because you are not 78 years old. So you remember clearly, you know, because in diplomacy or in a strategic dialogue or um, a conversation between leaders, every wording would, ha- would have to be precise especially when dealing with the cross-trade issue or U.S.-Taiwan-China. So I would first uh, by saying that for any leaders, boss, CEOs, they definitely remember what had been in the conversation, but they may not be able to recall the exact wording, okay? And um, when people heard about Taiwan Agreement, uh, some people would say, oh, probably the United States tried to secretly sell out Taiwan on one extreme. On the other extreme is that uh, there uh, must be something that was not shared when the United States government debriefed Taiwan about that conversation. I would use my academic logic or my you know, policy experience to say that uh, when people talk about three things, one is uh, Taiwan Relations Act, uh, three joint communiques with Beijing, and the six assurances uh, as the Taiwan Agreement. Uh, that's not true, uh, even though I was not listening to their conversation, because Beijing will never agree upon the three-in-one one-China policy uh, in the United States. They only recognize the three joint communiques between Beijing and Washington. So that is not the case. On the other hand, Beijing will never 
rule out uh, a military option to resolve the political differences across the Strait. So if we cut out all the so-called impossibles, and then the best that we can think of, that something that Xi Jinping promised, you know, uh, President Biden, as Biden during uh, its interview saying that uh, he would hold China accountable for a Taiwan agreement. I would say the only possible agreement, quote unquote, that I can think of that is logical for me is that uh, Xi Jinping said that Beijing will use peaceful means to resolve the problems across the Taiwan Strait. So that's it. Uh, so when uh, the reporters uh, run to the President Biden and say, oh, what's your comment on the bombers and uh, reconnaissance planes, fighter jets flying uh, through the uh, Taiwan's uh, ADIZ, and the President naturally would say, you know, I will hold him accountable because President Biden may remember that uh, China had promised uh, and agreed to use peaceful means to resolve political differences. And why are you sending so many military plans uh, and coerce Taiwan? And that that's how I would imagine uh, what exactly the story was. So I'm not terribly worried that there was a secret deal between Washington and Beijing and without uh, even a notification uh, to uh, Taiwan. Those are Professor Alexander Huang's thoughts about what the Taiwan Agreement may be and on U.S. troops in Taiwan. Professor Alexander Huang is a top military strategist and also a teacher of American studies at Danjiang University's Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies. Next week, I will continue to talk with Professor Huang about the possibility of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. From the London Underground to the Taipei Metro, the people of our world are going places. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. For all your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download. Welcome to the download from Radio Taiwan International, where we cover all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Sash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today, I continue my conversation with Dr. Alex Tichy of Academia Sinica. He tells me about where astronomy's next breakthrough is coming and how artificial intelligence isn't a silver bullet. All that coming up on the download.
Just to recap, Dr. Tichy made a splash, so to speak, in the astronomy world with a research paper that outlined a possible candidate for the first confirmed exomoon. That's a moon surrounding a planet outside our solar system, a moon called Kepler-1625b. But there was a lot of people, a lot of attention on us, a lot of pressure on us to get it right. And, and you know, we got the data and people, we had journalists like writing me the next morning being like, well, is it there? Did you see it? <laughs> she says, hold on a second. And, we, you know, we really spent a whole year uh, diving into that data and trying to understand every little bit of it that we, that we could. Um, and it made a splash, even though it was a sort of a strange paper that we ended up writing. Because typically, either you say it's there or it's not there. And we wrote this paper saying, well, we've run all these tests and it kind of looks like it's there, but we're stopping a little shorter saying it's definitely there. And people didn't really know what to make of that. They were like, well, you know, it's almost like we we're trying to have it both ways. We we're trying to say we got the discovery, but we that we're kind of covering our, our rear uh, by not, uh, you know, getting out too far ahead of it. But we we're just trying to be honest about how we uh, how we talked about it. So, yeah, it was a big time. Um, I'm happy to have it a little bit in the rearview mirror because it's just one system and um, I've done all with it basically that I can. It's time for it's time to move on to other things. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, that, that's something I didn't realize that you, you're saying that that there aren't any real kind of 100 percent identified. We definitely got this exomoons currently on our right. records. Is that is that right? That's right. Yeah, there have been sort of tantalizing you know, hints that maybe we found something here. Maybe we found something there. And because it would be potentially the first, we try to be exceptionally hard-nosed about it. Uh, something that my uh, former advisor, David Kipping, uh, back at Columbia, says is, uh, you know, when you have 4,000 planets in the catalog, someone comes along and they, they say, oh, we found one more. Well, nobody really bats an eye, and, and nobody even scrutinizes it very much. Uh, but if it is going to be the first one, then people are really going to probe it and question it and, and do their own independent analyses of, of that sort of thing. And that's part of the process, right? That's how it should be. I mean, I almost I sort of regret that the 4,001st planet is not getting the same kind of scrutiny that the, the first or the tenth one is, um, because they should all be scrutinized, of course. Uh, and so it's challenging. The, the data is just we're just on the edge of having data that's really... Uh, enough for us. We're asking these telescopes to do things that they really were not designed to do. And these moons, you can imagine, are, are, are very, very small. Um, just to, is a, to give some concreteness, when a planet passes in front of its star, it blocks out something like maybe a tenth of the starlight. Uh, and that's for something, you know, as big as Jupiter, right? I mean, a very, very large planet. Um, we'll block out just, you know, depends on a, a variety of factors, but we're talking about very, very little dips in the intensity of the starlight, and then a moon is much, much smaller, I mean, smaller than the Earth, and um, and so you can imagine it's a smaller moon, uh, so a smaller object blocks out a lot less light, and so we're talking about, you know, we're, we're talking about a few hundred parts per million is the the, the size of this signal that we're looking for. And there's all sort of other confounding noise and other signals in the data that we have to sift through and, and clean in a sort of agnostic way. And so it becomes very challenging to do the work and um, it's really not necessarily a surprise that we haven't found them. And uh, maybe not such a surprise that there isn't a huge industry of people working on this yet. Um, you know, it'll come eventually, but we're trying to, you know, somebody has to do the, the pathfinding and, and, um, and, you know, I guess it's us. <laughs> and you talk about kind of yeah, like you're kind of it sounds almost like you're hitting the kind of the limits of of what's available with the kind of data at the moment. I mean, where do you think the next 
you know what's 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 going to be the next step that takes you that that extra that extra bit further is it going to be more better hardware uh you know things up in space with better technology looking in the right places uh, or is it going to be stuff like you know you talk about your own experiences learning to deal with machine learning and things like that where do you yeah. think those next advances are coming yeah, I think it's a little bit of all of the above. I mean, we definitely have these new telescopes coming online, and these are very long time scales. Sometimes we're talking 10 or 20 years down the line. Uh, light collecting power is very important. Uh, the bigger your mirror, the more light you can collect instantaneously. And when we're looking at something like a light curve, um, you know, telescopes operate uh, in a way where if you just stare at something long enough, just like taking a long exposure photograph, if you stare at something long enough, you can collect more and more light. But once you start um, segmenting the data so that it's a time series, right, then you don't get to stare at it infinitely long, right? You only get as much light as you get in that instance. And you can kind of stack it up a little bit, but the more you stack it up, the less sort of time resolution you have, right? And so uh, for something like doing time domain, uh, time series observations, you just need a bigger, bigger telescope. At the same time, we can't put infinitely large things in space. I mean, we can build big, big telescopes here on the ground, and there are currently uh, plans to build telescopes that are 30 meters across in some cases. Uh, so that's really astonishing. But then you have all kinds of challenges from working on the ground versus working in, in space. So hardware will be part of it. Um, and then people just have to kind of get uh, creative about ways of looking for things. And, and we're still kind of coming up with new ways that we might uh, identify these moons, which is very exciting to kind of, you know, be dreaming up some entirely new technique of, of looking for these things is quite challenging as well, uh, as you might imagine, but, uh, but it's also quite gratifying because then those, those are the tools that other people will come along and use uh, eventually to, uh, to actually find those things. And the weird thing about coming up with new ideas is that if you come up with an idea today, you say, well, why didn't I think of that a year ago? You know? I mean, well, you didn't have that year in the process to kind of slowly have that uh, percolating in your brain. And so you kind of have to have a little faith in the community to eventually dream up things that haven't been thought of yet. And that's part of why I really hope in the future we can get more people uh, working on in this particular field because we need more brains uh, kind of thinking through these problems and coming up with ways of uh, doing it. And how has, I mean, looking, I guess, at machine learning in particular, how has that changed uh, the field in, the, in, in recent years, or has it changed the field in recent years? Yeah, so I've written a paper, it's hopefully going to come out soon, uh, using machine learning to, to look for exomoon signals. Um, and um, uh, we got very uh, good results in our training data, but then we apply it to the actual data and it doesn't, it doesn't give us much. Um, and that's challenging to interpret, right? Okay, so, so we do, you know, 98% accuracy with this training set. But then we throw it on the real data and it, you know, gives us, you know, 1% of this uh, data looks like maybe there's moons there. So, uh, you know, because we don't really know the answer ahead of time, are we just not doing very well with the real data or is there really just not much in the way of moons sitting in the data? That's, that's a, sort of a hard question to uh, to disentangle. Um, but more broadly, machine learning is exploding in astronomy, um, you know, partly because the data volume is just becoming enormous, right? I mean, increasingly, we just have enormous amounts of data uh, coming down on a daily basis from these telescopes all around the world. And how do you parse all of that? Uh, at a certain point, machine learning becomes the only way of doing it, right? I mean, we use machine learning in, you know, processing mail, 
And uh, that's just because we can't have someone reading every single envelope and, and determining where it's supposed to go. The volume is just too enormous in order to be able to do that. And so in that respect, machine learning is, is going to be very powerful. But at the same time, you know, it's not a silver bullet. I think a lot of people think, okay, here's my training set, uh, training data. I'll just throw it at the algorithm. The algorithm will learn all the things and then I'll throw it at my problem and everything will be solved. And um, it clearly doesn't work that way. And, um, you know, we're basically trying to, it's called, you know, uh, like neural networks, for example. Uh, it's designed to kind of be like the brain. Uh, but the brain is incredibly sophisticated. And however much training you do of these algorithms, uh, you can't really beat the brain. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, Dr. Tichi tells me why he did the necessary calculations to figure out how aliens could use lasers to hide from prying human eyes. That's next week with me on The Download. This is Highlights, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Stash Butler spoke with NGO worker and activist Roy Ngerng to put this latest wage hike into context. Many cities in Taiwan have fairly high living costs, with some workers struggling to meet those costs on a minimum wage. Is Taiwan's latest rise in the minimum wage enough to help those people? If you compare Taiwan with uh, other advanced countries as a whole, packed to the cost of, cost of living, Taiwan's minimum wage should actually be closer to $40,000 on average across the whole of Taiwan. So the fact that we are still seeing a minimum wage that is only about um, half to you know 60% uh, of what is needed in terms of the minimum wage in Taiwan means that uh, there are workers that are uh, struggling and perhaps living in uh, relative poverty. I mean, you, I mean, I, I've you know read your work and, and you point. You have lots of these very illustrative you know graphs that show uh, you know how the you know Taiwan's wages have changed over time compared to various sort of indicators of economic growth. And and you kind of repeatedly point to this kind of decoupling and kind of round about the beginning of Chen Shui-bian's presidency in in around about the year two thousand and one. Uh, what are the reasons for that? Why, why do we see this, this kind of this, uh, this separation of, I mean, profits in some cases and, and, and kind of workers' uh, compensation? I, I think the main part of the reason would be the economic crisis in 1997. Um, you can see that prior to 1997, Taiwan's minimum wage and GDP per capita was actually growing uh, faster than uh, even South Korea. And in fact, uh, this is something that many people in Taiwan have forgotten that Taiwan's minimum wage and GDP per capita used to be higher than South Korea. In fact, Taiwan's minimum wage uh, was twice as high as South Korea in the early 1990s. But this has um, changed, uh, turned around, and South Korea actually has twice the minimum wage as Taiwan right now. Um, I think it's the different uh, economic strategies that the governments in Taiwan and South Korea adopted. While South Korea felt that it had to um, turn into high-value uh, manufacturing and uh, economic development to grow its economy, Taiwan, however, decided that it would depress uh, costs in order to allow profits to grow. And the opening up of China uh, in the 2000s also resulted in 
businesses uh, leaving Taiwan for China to uh, take advantage of the lower cost. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.